0: Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. I'm wearing shoulder pads.
0: Yes, you are.
1: I like it. Yeah, feeling very powerful, very strident. Well, I hope some of that rubs off on me today. <laughs> I could use a
0: power boost.
1: <laughs> you are such a flirt, Carrie Plitt. You are always a power boost to me.
0: Anyway. Yes. Um, we're really excited for the show today. Yeah, and I think really it's, a, it's a topic close to your interests and your, um, heart. <laughs> <laughs> it's in my wheelhouse. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are talking about masculinity in literature. What makes a man? Why do men fight? Is there a crisis of masculinity? These are some of the questions that authors from Ernest Hemingway to Grayson Perry have asked and questions that Thomas Page McBee addresses head on in his searching beautiful and wise book Amateur, the true story of his quest to become the first trans man to box at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Thomas is joining us today on the show. Octavia, do you want to tell
1: our listeners a little bit more about him? Absolutely. Thomas Page McBee was a masculinity expert for Vice. His essays and reportage have appeared in the New York Times, Playboy, Glamour and Salon. Um, And his second book, Amateur, has been shortlisted for the 2018 Bailey Gifford Prize. He's also the author of a book um, called Man Alive. And we're so, so excited that he's come to join us today. Yes, we are. So we will talk to Thomas about amateur,
0: more generally about masculinity in literature. And finally, we will give our book recommendations. So if you want to learn what it really means to be a man, stay with us for the next hour on Literary Friction. Thomas, thanks so much for coming on Literary Friction. So, we've asked you to start with a reading. Would you mind just setting it up and going ahead?
2: Um, I don't know if it needs set up because it's just the very first pages of the book. So, I'll just, just jump right in. According to the laws of physics and USA boxing, this wasn't a fair fight. But there we were, two guys past our primes, circling each other in front of 1,700 drunk onlookers in Madison Square Garden, that hallowed hall of American boxing. Since July, I'd bled at the gums and screamed into pillows and almost quit. I'd failed. I temporarily and to varying degrees lost my mind, my hearing, and my friends. Also, that a guy with 17 pounds on me could beat bruises across my face, both of us a messy mosaic of blurred senses, damp armpits, hot lights, tangy throat, rubber mouth guard bite marks, squeaky pivots, spangles of stars. Also, that my fist could connect with his stomach and his mine. It would hurt the stinging price of knowing my body's upper limits. But for now, my muscles harmonize out their combinations as a meditative quiet sucked the cheers out of the stadium. I understood that we were both just sinew, and blood, and bone, and follicles, and decay. The truth was, I loved him, even as I danced around him with my hands in the air. I was a new man, the first transgender man to fight in the most storied boxing venue on Earth, there to close the gap between us, like the fiction that it is.
0: I love that. Thank you. Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Got chills listening to it again, and <laughs> it's a great way to start that. a book. So I just wanted to start by asking you um, why you wanted to train to box at Madison Square Garden and what you were hoping to learn from fighting.
2: Yeah. So that question really is a is sort of a, the answer is a bigger story, which is, I think, how I came to write the book in general. Um, I transitioned in 2011 and that was two years after the Great Recession started, which was also basically the beginning of the masculinity crisis. And so as I was coming into my, you know, gender identity and my body and and feeling good about myself sort of in my apartment and in my house, I was reporting about what was happening in like the broader world around how men were, you know, basically that that story was framed as as an economic story about how men were out of work and how that was creating a crisis for men. And I just felt like, the crisis I was experiencing every day, not not in myself, in my body, in my apartment, but when I would leave the apartment and the ways I was experiencing the world and the conditioning of the world as, as I was becoming the man I was at 30, was really echoing some of the things I was seeing, you know, in terms of the bigger, broader masculinity crisis. And so um, there were two primary categories where that was true. One was uh, uh, I was experiencing um, privileges that I'd never had before. So sort of a sense of, um, from everything from like, you know, like, if I left my apartment and I went to work, I would be able to, like, silence a room with my voice, for example, and I never had that happen before, like, just be able to speak and have everyone listen in a meeting, Um, or I never got interrupted, Um, or I, uh, I sort of was promoted much more quickly than I'd ever been before, and uh, paid better uh, than I'd ever been before, but those, and, and I would, you know, walk down, if I was walking, you know, Walking to work, uh, and uh, I was on the right. same street as like a woman or whatever, and it was like a quiet street. I would notice that she might cross the street to avoid me, um, and so I became like a, a weaponized body in a certain way, which was, uh, I guess, a privilege, but also upsetting. All of it was upsetting. On the other hand, I also was feeling a lot of constrictions around like how I was supposed to behave in the world. So like the idea of being a man almost immediately and without my consent like the way I was treated I learned a lot about what I was supposed to be doing and a lot of what I was supposed to be doing was um I felt like not expressing my feelings uh sort of always being strong always seeming in control and it felt like I was further and further from sort of my sense of self as a person when I was in the world socially and so the fighting and the boxing came from um the summer so so this was a few years of of that experience and, uh, and I kind of couldn't quite figure out how to manage it because it was just so much change at the same time, but I knew I was uncomfortable. Um, and then the summer uh, after my mom died and I was experiencing grief, which I was really struggling with because of all those constricted ways in which I felt I could express myself in the world. Um, I had this very wild experience where for three months in a row, um, a guy would try to street fight me <laughs> in New York. And um, it was very odd. It hasn't happened since. But maybe I was just sort of walking around angry with that grief. I don't know. But the last time that this happened, um, I was, like, leaving my apartment to go get ice cream at a bodega and took a picture of a restaurant because I wanted to send it to my, to my girlfriend. And um, this guy just came out of nowhere, and he thought I was taking a picture of his car, and it escalated quickly. And I think just in this moment where I really, I almost, I felt very much like I really wanted to fight this guy. And I had never felt that before, and it was a bad feeling. And it was for me like kind of a last straw around all of these issues and being like, you know, I know what the masculinity crisis is. I understand we're in this moment where, you know, gender seems to be something that we're all grappling with, even if no one's talking about it yet, uh, because this was before the US election in 2016. And I wanted to, I guess, do the thing that you're taught as a man not to do, which is ask questions about masculinity. It's sort of the first rule of masculinity. Don't, like, fight club. Um, Don't ask about masculinity. So I really, like, decided that you know the only way I could think of as a reporter to manage this was to ask why do men fight and that's how I ended up getting involved with this charity outfit and boxing and you know obviously one thing led to another I was in Madison Square Garden before I knew it (laughs) as it happens (laughs) as as it all goes
1: (laughs) well one of the things I've really loved in the book is the way that the process of learning how to fight and you're very beautiful descriptions of the physicality of it. Thank you. And something that happens alongside your, yeah, your exploration of masculinity in a broader sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the kind of, it's it's a really, it comes across as a really liberating experience in that perversely it's this hyper masculine, supposedly hyper masculine experience, boxing yeah. and learning how to fight. But also it allows you to kind of leave that behind and mm-hmm. be just a body right. in that experience, yes. which must have been, you know, you talk a lot about the paradoxes of masculinity that yeah. you experience kind of in the ring. And I yeah. wonder if you could describe some of that kind of for our listeners a little bit more.
2: Yeah. I mean, what I later learned was that from sociologists was that the cover of violence, as it were, like basically um, it erased the masculinity threat that most men feel when they're sort of amongst, amongst each other. Uh, so because no man I was with was having to sort of defend their masculinity, it kind of reconnected everyone to their sort of, um, to their empathy, I think, and to their ability to have intimacy, and all the things that I think a lot of men are, I know a lot of men are socialized out of in boyhood. So, my experience training was really about, um, and this was very surprising to me, it was about working with other men who are also training to do, mostly men, who are also training to, to fight in Madison Square Garden. And um, so much of that work is about, uh, kind of, I think ironically, it's about. Um, spotting someone's weakness and like spotting your own weaknesses and really understanding because it's just you in the ring so it's like there's no teammates to like you know distract anyone from the thing that you really can't do Um, and so really very quickly I realized like oh this is a sport about noticing in someone else like oh you do this thing and it's almost always a psychological thing like for me it was like a fear of being aggressive or coming forward you're doing this thing and how can I sort of gently help you like not Um, Covered up because there's no way, but sort like identify it, work with it, learn how to make that vulnerability or that weakness into a strength because you're going to have to because you're not going to stop having this. You know, probably you're not going to stop having this fear outright, but you need to work with it and understand it and confront it. So the metaphors abounded. I guess like I was really, I was really shocked about that. And I think boxing's always been a sport that has attracted literary types. You know, Um, I know Joyce Carol Oates. Her book on boxing was really profound for me, Uh, you know, and as a fan, I always really loved reading literary accounts of boxing. But to experience it, it felt like a very, it felt like a return to, you know, high school where, you know, you learn like about man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself. It kind of felt like that, like everything, the stakes were very much about um, much deeper themes. And because of that, the people who I was around, I felt like were really really interested in a much more internal process. Um, and that was not my experience of being around my male friends prior to this. <laughs>
0: and you, I mean, you spend a lot of time in the book just describing the process of training to mm-hmm. box, which is incredibly intense mm-hmm. and exhausting, and men- both mentally and physically. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, but also about how you balanced this story of you boxing with the wider story that you wanted to tell about masculinity? Was that a difficult thing to do while you were writing this book? Because I think it's, it does seem to be a very fine balance that you've struck in the end.
2: Yeah. So the training, I, I can answer both questions actually, um, the same way, I think, which is that so, so to train, it was so intense. I was, um, I was way behind on the training. Like I sort of had this idea and then I, I called somebody who I knew who was involved with this charity boxing outfit and because he was able to sort of add me last minute to a fight card um I only had five months which sounds like a long time but is not because you have to learn a whole sport and get your body in that kind of condition and um and I had a full-time job in media which was a 60 hour a week job so um so I, I was really behind on my training so I had to train um almost every day for many hours, you know, I would, like, go to work, and then I would go to the gym, and I'd come home at, like, 10 or 11 every night and then do it all again. Um, and the training itself is a lot about, like, you know, just, the. it's about learning how to literally do a whole sport and also, like, getting over all of the psychological blocks that, you know, everybody has about um, about being in a fight, you know? It's a very, like, um, it's a challenging thing to learn how to do. For me, for me it was a lot about... Um, I didn't mind being hit because I had been a goalkeeper in high school, so I, I felt okay with that, but it was more learning how to feel aggressive and angry towards someone who, actually I'll take that back, it's not angry, but how to learn how to feel aggressive towards somebody who hadn't done anything to me, so like that was a lot of the work for me, and, um, and so I had to spar a lot in order for that to happen. Uh, and get very comfortable, so it's just sort of constantly being hit in the head, constantly hitting other people, <laughs> doing like an amazing amount of cardio that I'm just and even now look back on. And I'm like, I can't, I can't even do like three rounds on a bag now, and I'm like, that was just my, that wasn't even my warm up. That was like my pre warm up, warm up. You know, um, it was an incredible amount of work. Um, and the second question was, uh, related... how did
0: how did you balance that story with the wider right, story? Okay,
2: and so the way I. The way I conceived of this project was that I would do this boxing work and then basically just take notes every every day after, and every question that came up for me that was like a, a stupid or a silly question about, about my experience of being a man, I would write it down. And then after the entire experience, I reported out all those questions. So I really tried to, I guess, stay very mindful and present to the boxing, but also be really in ways that you know, even where maybe sometimes embarrassing, be really committed to like, you know, whatever question I wrote down, I was going to answer and I was going to call whoever I needed to call, like whatever sociologist or historian or neuroscientist or whoever, who I thought could help me understand the things that came up during this experience. And then I would layer that back in. I think the real challenge was I, um, I bought, I, the, the actual fight was, uh, in 2015, and then, of course, in the US, the, the presidential election of 2016 had such a major impact on how I think everyone was thinking about masculinity, which in some ways I felt grateful for because I felt like this conversation needed to happen. But I also had, you know, had to figure out how to deal with time in the book um, in a way that made sense temporally, um, because it's just, you know, I had an experience before this sort of giant what felt like to many people a very giant sea change that was coming all along. Um, but for everyone else, I, I don't think so many people saw it coming. So um, balancing that was an interesting feed.
1: The thing about the questions that I, I loved when I, I got to the chapter that begins with the question, Am I sexist? Yeah. And it was such a relief for me to read a man. Interrogating that mm-hmm. fully and yeah. and bravely, frankly, but like really looking at that question of how we we all internalize sexism in one way or another. Yeah, of course. And it made me think a lot about how. You know, I'm a feminist and I, I'm a feminist thinker and all these things. But I've also internalized a lot of toxic masculinity in oh, my yeah. expectations of men. Yeah. And, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about the feminine sphere yeah. and about the non-binary sphere. I yeah. don't actually spend that much time thinking about masculinity. Right. And obviously these things are all in relation to one another. Yeah. Um, And so it gave me a lot of food for thought. And it was in in many ways very relieving to mm. kind of be in the opposite Mm-hmm. sort of space to where my thinking is is gravitates to, if yeah, that makes sense. Totally. Um, and I was very grateful for the um, bibliography at the back as well. I think that's great. I yeah. mean, what kind of a reader were you writing for?
2: Yeah, uh, as, as for a reader, I mean, I, I think I had multiple readers in mind. I certainly was hoping to reach cis men um, because I, I, I think to your point around, um, you know, I guess not thinking about masculinity or thinking about maybe feminism, but not necessarily thinking about masculinity and its connection to feminism, um, I think the way, maybe the way these conversations can often go wrong is that, you know, people are, humans in general are defensive when they feel attacked and people often feel attacked around identity. And in fact, if you say to someone like, uh, I believe I've read this as a, as a don't, quote, don't quote me on this part about the science, but I know I, I've read somewhere that, I, you know, when, when people's identities are threatened, they're much more likely to double down in that identity. So right now when we're in a moment, at least in the US, where we're talking about white men all the time, I think that it's necessary and people are angry for good reason. And also it's really challenging to to hear your identity, your sense of identity being attacked and not respond with anything but defensiveness. So I think my thing was, you know, not not in any way to coddle anyone, but to actually just try to literally have a beginner's mind about this. And when I did that, I found a lot of empathy, not necessarily so much for adult men, but for boys. And I learned a lot about, you know, almost every question I asked, Every historian or sociologist or neuroscientist pointed me back to boyhood as a way to understand how masculinity is conditioned. And, and especially, for example, when we talk about toxic masculinity, people are so confused about what that means. And I think people generally, especially men, seem to think it's a description of masculinity, which is part of the brainwashing of, of how we think about masculinity. But in fact, it is a set of socialized behaviors that people learn. It has nothing to do with biology there's nothing innate to it and uh and that they can unlearn so for me like empathy and accountability became these sort of twin ways of thinking and so for this chapter about being sexist like it was a lot easier for me to to reckon with my own you know um I guess human biases by understanding that that this was this is part of my enculturation as a person and in fact everyone has these biases and I thought that maybe if I could model um you know, Not not because I was trying to be some sort of role model for everyone else, but just it, once I realized that this was a way of thinking that I thought could be useful to others, I, I really felt like I've got to commit to doing the the sometimes embarrassing work of being like, okay, let me look at this. Am I sexist? Yes, I do interrupt women more than men. Yes, I do take longer to respond to women than men at work. Like There are these things I was doing that, that were objectively uh, sexist, and the good news was once I understood it, I could change those behaviors, and to me that was sort of you know, for audiences, I wanted cis men to take this up and read it and realize, like, oh, this is not about um, my identity. This is about what I've been taught to be. And in fact, my identity, it might be actually very different than what I've been taught to be. And maybe I will be feel much more liberated if I actually can see those differences. I, I certainly do. Um, but I also was thinking about, of course, I really wanted women to read this for the reason you're describing, because I think we're all, you know, we're all better off thinking about gender as a system, as a system of power, and if we're only looking at it from one perspective, um, from a feminist perspective, and just thinking about women or just thinking even about trans people, we're missing like part of the story. So uh, yeah, my, my hope was you know, women, trans people of all gender identities. I, I really wanted to reach as many people as possible.
0: So speaking of toxic masculinity i think it might be worth just defining after writing this book and doing all the research you did what what you see as the traits of toxic masculinity and whether through this process and through a sort of wider process of thinking about masculinity you've come to a place where you can reimagine what masculinity might be
2: yeah so toxic masculinity is um it it's, it's not a term technically invented by sociologists they, they say hegemonic masculinity but they often use the term toxic in relationship to it which is I think how those things got connected um, but what it is, is is I think best defined actually by this exercise called the man box which um, is a is a exercise sociologists do with like boys usually in you know middle school to like lower level high school age uh, where they go into a classroom and they say okay here's a box Um what what does it mean to be a man and let's put all those characteristics in the box and so the things they say are things like you know being strong um being powerful not showing weakness not showing emotion um you know like basically anything the psychologist niobe way says anything that is not quote girly or gay gets put in the box and then what i think is interesting the sort of second part of that exercise is that then sometimes they say Okay, well, what about like a man in your life that you admire, like a father or a coach or a minister or whatever? Does he have any characteristics that don't fit into this box? And then often they will say things like, well, yeah, my, my dad's really supportive. He's really nurturing, or my coach is always there for me. And so then they sort of put those outside the man box. And you can see very quickly, even as a child, that there's a really big difference between how you're expected to behave and um, who, like the qualities that actually make you feel connected to other people and um so i think when i think of toxic masculinity i think about that it it really is about teaching young boys that the way to be powerful in in our world is to be dominant and to um not show empathy and to um take unnecessary risks um and uh to to basically lose your connection to um to other people i guess in, in service of power and to me like I think once I came to understand it that way I really understood that when you look at patriarchy and you look how it's it operates and how it works and how you know that oh, I'll say one more thing about this the other thing is baked into that is the idea that there are real men and so like which in and of itself if you just step back and think about it is such a strange concept right like so if there's such a thing as a real man, again, another binary, that means there have to be fake men. So a lot of toxic masculinity is about policing masculinity and therefore keeping it kind of constricted into this box, which I think of as the biggest pyramid scheme of all time because you're (laughs) spending all this time, you know, like, policing each other and never thinking about why are we even doing this in the first place? And, in fact, all your energy is cannibalized in this, like, either defense of your masculinity, which is always under threat, or policing of other masculinities, um... And therefore, you're, you're never noticing like what you've lost in the process or maybe who's taking advantage of you in a much bigger way because you're spending all this time doing this. So, so that's the to me, that's the easiest way of understanding toxic masculinity. And the easiest way, therefore, to disrupt it kind of ironically is being just asking questions about it because there aren't good answers to these questions. Um, but a big part of what keeps it keeps it um, keeps things as they are is that people are afraid to ask questions because they makes you less real you're supposed to know all the answers and the effects of toxic masculinity just to wrap this whole thing up is um are are very real and measurable like for example um you know when you think about the fact that men have higher suicide rates than um pretty than 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 women and if you think about the fact that uh, men commit almost all um violent crime uh certainly they they commit all all mass shootings i believe have been done by men um so like Beyond that, there's also the environmental implications. Men are much less likely to recycle, uh, for example, because they consider it feminine. Um, So there's, you know, and then the economic crisis in general, like right now in the US anyway, we have an abundance of jobs and we have an abundance of people out of work. And it's because the jobs that are available are so-called pink collar jobs that are associated with, for no reason, with femininity, um, mostly jobs around healthcare and nursing. Nursing is an incredibly physical job That requires a lot of um, you know especially in like emergency room nursing like a lot of bravery a lot of like being willing to sort of withstand all all kinds of things actually I think you might associate with literally toxic masculinity but because it's been seen as feminine uh, men aren't taking those jobs so um, so the implications economically environmentally um, you know in terms of violence they're they're huge geopolitically obviously Um, so yes and there, in terms of what is there, in terms of how do you reimagine masculinity? I think that the best answer is um, expanding it. Like sort of the way to dilute this really intense, like potent idea about what it is to be a man is to start um, having more and more models of what masculinity can look like, because that then undermines this idea. And kind of as soon as you pull out the card, like one card, the whole thing topples. It's not actually very sturdy.
0: Mm. One of the things that I really liked about the book was that you find a lot of different models of masculinity in the very place you assume that you won't in the Mm -hmm. boxing gym, amongst your coaches, amongst the people you're sparring with, amongst um, the athletes as well. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, the men I was sparring with were, um, and and my coaches and, and everyone around me was always surprising me, which I thought was interesting. I mean, I do keep thinking about that idea that because there wasn't a threat to anyone's masculinity, both the good and bad news is because the men around me were not experiencing masculinity threat, which is, again, a measurable, you know, psychological experience for men who are really identified with this idea of being real, none of these men were having that feeling because their masculinity was safe. Um, So therefore, within that container, they could behave however they wanted. And the way most men chose to behave around me was... Re, really with a reconnection to all of those things I was describing. Intimacy, uh, a lot of physical touching. Like, I just felt like there was, like, people were always hugging me. Um, a lot of emotional support. Like, I've never been asked more about my, you know, everything from my eating to sleeping habits to, like, my emotional well-being. And it's all under the guise, I, I suppose, of the sport. But also, it wasn't even, like, people were pretending that that was... You know I, I had a real closeness with these people and, and still do um, and and I was working with people from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds all kinds of life experiences um, and and almost across the board I would say peop- men were much sort of su- were surprisingly um, intimate with me in ways that actually reminded me a lot more of my life before my transition and, and, the, and the people I was friends with than like I guess what I would expect from a bunch of like macho straight guys who were boxing. Um, so that was really, I guess the interesting, surprising thing. But I do think obviously that the fact that that cover had to be there um, for men to feel that safe is something that is worth noting and needs to be, you know needs to be disband- dismantled at some point.
1: Do you think that that has a lot to do with it being? I mean, I know that there were women in the gym, but yes. very few. Uh-huh. The kind of I, I think a lot about this: the idea of the gender segregated space yeah. and what freedoms that permits. Mm-hmm. You know, whichever gender you're, you're sort of yeah. ex- sort of looking at. But I was thinking about that throughout this book: how yes, the, this space where no one's masculinity is being challenged because there's like a a baseline acceptance mm-hmm. and a kind of uh, reckoning that's happening across all the men present. Right. But is it also because in that space it's not being thrown into relief by its supposedly binary opposite? Mm,
2: I perhaps.
1: wonder. I don't yeah.
2: know. I don't know, but I think that would still be part of that toxic umbrella, right? Absolutely, then, and
1: toxic on both sides. Right,
2: right, right. And from the from the masculinity perspective, it's like, If there if there was a sense that um, that women would be disruptive to the space, that would only be because you know that your sort of desire to to prove your sort of domination over women and then other men as well, like that would be sort of a bigger factor versus like this kind of equalizing. Like we're not doing that right now. That's not what we're all here for. Um, But the women who were there and the women I trained with were I I I mean I don't know because I didn't interview them for the book around um around their experience just because I felt that would overcomplicate the story but I I it seemed like even in casual conversation that they felt very um welcome and part of you know part of the experience so I thought that that was interesting and I didn't witness you know anything around like I guess that I would have expected to witness with around the women in the gym and sexism it was sort of the same like being willing to fight, I think, was such an equalizing thing that actually, you know, it was just that was what earned people's respect and therefore, you know, whoever was doing it and whatever body was seen as somebody worthy of respect. And I thought that was, like, an interesting thing. And, and in fact, I, I've thought a lot about this and it's going to sound a little strange, but I'm going to say it. I think people ask a lot, like, well, what's the biggest thing you learned, you know, from writing this book? Or, or at least the most surprising thing in terms of from the boxing itself. And I think I learned that fighting is something I think we all need to learn how to do, especially people who have identities that are um, socialized out of that. It's a human thing to know how to fight. And I don't mean that like in a violent, like advocating a violence way. But I think, you know, the women around me who were like learning how to box, like I really felt like that seemed very important to them. And I I can imagine how important that might have felt to be like, I can access this in myself. And since so much of this is not about using these skills in any other capacity, but just about, I think, the internal process of being like, where is my aggression? Where is my ability to, like, come towards something that's a threat to me? Um, And and how can I learn how to stand, stand up to things that I want to stand up to without feeling like I have to back down because I don't have the power to do that? I think that's really important. And that's what I got out of it. And I feel like I'm using that in a positive and productive way that has nothing to do with violence now. I think more people, more people need to have access to that in themselves.
0: Yeah. As an athlete, I totally identify <laughs> yes. with that. But, um, <laughs> yeah. No, I, that's so interesting to hear. And I don't think I would have expected you to say that. Yes. Maybe? <laughs> yeah, um, so yeah. it's really interesting to hear you say that. Um, what kind of athlete are you? Oh, I, I play soccer and I, mm-hmm. I used to run track as mm. well. And so I identified with a lot of the, I'm going to cut this out of our, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the, the sort of like discipline and yeah. what, and what that brings you, that yeah. sort of aggressive discipline. So important. Yeah. And the being embodied, like I think again, culturally,
2: like I think just being able to be embodied in different ways. I mean, I'm trans, so obviously being embodied was important to me in that way. But I think from my understanding of women who are athletes, there's something very important and special about using your body in this way that's completely about, like, sport and and aggression and competition and things that women, I think, are, are sort of taught not to use their bodies for. Like, that seems really meaningful.
0: Yeah, it, it's <laughs> been incredibly meaningful yeah. for me in my life and um, has been the reason I think that I avoided some of the body issues that I saw yeah. affect my friends, right. because I was so confident in my body's ability to do things that were non-sexual. Exactly. That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah, to step
1: outside of the sexualized space, right. which female bodies are basically right. largely denied the possibility Exactly. for. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And just as a last question, yeah. I, I want to come to what I thought was a really beautiful passage in the book, in which you say, people sometimes think that being trans means I live between worlds but that's not exactly true. If anything, it has just created within me a potential for empathy that I must work every day like a muscle to grow. Mm. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you meant by that and how you want to take this out into the world to be on this book.
2: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, sort of my other job is thinking about, uh, as a journalist, and thinking about media narratives. And I've been both lucky and maybe not always so lucky to have watched, you know, the story of trans people as it's been formed in modern media, and a lot of the story has been so didactic and so, um, and so othering and so violently othering, really. And I think so much of my interest in, you know, I I I have I have a lot more identities than being trans or than being a man or you know being a journalist, you know, obviously. But I've been very compelled to think about these stories because I want to challenge people. To do as I feel I've had to do, which is sort of to to find my humanity and find my place in the greater human family, um, not by stepping back and really like getting calcified in like one identity, but actually trying to find points of connection. And and you know, so much of my transition itself actually was um, formed by having to happen to have had many pregnant women in my life at the same time I was transitioning. And so much of that experience wasn't about you know only having community with other people like me but trying to find like how do i like like i don't know coming home after work and seeing my landlord because i shared a house with her um and having these conversations because she was pregnant about you know hormones and like um homeostasis and like how our bodies were reacting and you know fears of like is you know will this be the right decision it's irreversible hopefully it all will work out you know and and just sort of being able to process like I guess with another person having a a very different experience that was very natural with what I also feel is a very natural, like across time and space, there's always been trans people, uh, experience of of gender. So I think that idea of like, um, it's not this neat journey where like you go from one side to the other. And then when you're on the other side, you you know, it's all done and you assimilate back into culture. And like, that was the whole point. Like for me, I think I want to highlight that we're one percent of the population, you know, like that's a small group. But uh, again, we've always existed, and and I think I'm lucky to have been born trans, which is how I see myself. And I think for me, I could become a person who, you know, aggressively just thinks of myself that way and, and really disconnects from people. And certainly, the world makes it easy to be that way. But I also think it, it's a to the greater good to to learn to to find those points of connection and I think if I can do it I I think other people can do it too and should
1: yeah here's to communicating across divides right big time yeah Yeah. thank you so much Thomas thank you yeah it's been an
0: absolute pleasure to have you on um so the book is called Amateur and I would encourage everyone to go out and read it thank you This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is masculinity. So lots of scholars and theorists and all kinds of people from Freud to Judith Butler have um really delved into what gender is what masculinity is um and you know you can find a whole reading list about that if you would like we're not going to talk about that today um we simply don't have time <laughs> carrie does yeah. not have time for <laughs> judith butler uh, i really do i these I'm, days I'm, no no i just i hate anyway i love judith butler and what she's saying i hate the experience of reading judith butler i
1: think that's an ex- that is completely fair and an opinion shared by many okay. including me yeah great um
0: okay Dump that
1: in the trash. <laughs> what we're going to be talking
0: about today is masculinity in literature. Um, and even that is a big topic. I think the thing to maybe start with is that we can think of literature and indeed all of culture as something that both reflects but also reinforces cultural norms. So for most of the history of literature, beginning with the sort of classic texts like the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, it's been about reinforcing norms of masculinity from, you know, valor, power, uh, strength, stoicism, heroism. And, you know, we can talk about how that's been problematized throughout the course of literature. But I think for the most part, we can think of literature as something that has really reinforced toxic masculinity as defined by thomas earlier in our discussion
1: yeah absolutely and you can't get away from the fact that essentially most of the history if not all the history of western literature is the narrative of being a man rather than being a human (laughs) being a person it's very much grounded in the masculine sphere most books are by men about men about masculine struggles and obviously that balance is changing nowadays thank god um but you 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 know, so to approach masculinity as a topic within literature, you kind of left standing facing down all canons, (laughs) canons in every language, in every discipline, because that is the history of of thought or the history of Western thought is is kind of the the one that I can speak to the most clearly. Um, So, yeah, I think I think it's an interesting time to be thinking about this because we are reading backwards through these canons, hopefully with different eyes and a different perspective, a more critical perspective of the kind of masculinity that is being presented in these texts. Um, And then books that are being written in the contemporary kind of moment are also using that perspective a lot of the time to be interrogative about these things and these tropes and as you say this question of the elements of masculinity that are presented as toxic as opposed to essential and that toxic masculinity is not the same as masculinity it's a brand of masculinity which i think you can see very strongly in the writing of people like hemingway jonathan franzen john updike um philip roth like all these writers that are very talented and lauded for for very good reason in terms of their skill um However, when you look at the characters that they are presenting us with as uh, potential um what's the word I'm looking for uh models to for for young men to model themselves on, they're very fucked up i mean they're 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 fundamentally skewed in a way that I I'm unhappy about. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, let's talk about, um, you know, skipping the Victorians and everyone like that. Let's jump over them, yeah. Let's talk about Hemingway. Because I think when you think about masculinity in literature, the, the name that your mind goes to is Hemingway, isn't it? Because he is... You know, a lot of his books are about men doing manly things like hunting or being soldiers or um, fishing alone by themselves, you know, unconquerable by the world. Um, And you get a different version of that in the 60s with with authors like Updike or Roth, um, Norman Mailer, who, again, um, were writing, you know, maybe more from a perceived position of the male in crisis, but reasserting a very... Um, normative version of masculinity in their books. However, um, I would say, like you know, if you start to look at those books, and maybe this is the perspective of of us in the present day, knowing what we know, um, or at least having interrogated patriarchy a little bit more, um, you can see all of those authors' masculinities sort of slipping between their fingers, even as they're writing them. You know, I, I I always think of *The Sun Also Rises* by Hemingway, which I which I must admit that I really loved when I read it in high school and I think I still love it Um, and at the center of that novel is Jake Barnes um, it's a sort of uh, interwar novel set in Spain um, and Jake has been injured in the war and we learn that he's impotent Um, and you know I think that's a novel that questions masculinity as much as it builds it up.
1: Yeah well and there's something to be said for the nature of literature playing a role in that anyway because if you think about models of masculinity that are presented via other forms of culture like on screen for example they can't help but engage very heavily in the fact that gender is essentially a performance because they are a performed usually fairly two-dimensional version like I'm thinking of Indiana Jones because you kind of can't not when you think about models of masculinity for our generation in particular or James Bond who obviously is a character that comes from literature um but because of the way that we respond to on-screen persona and the way we consume visual culture um there's there's less space for interrogation i think a lot of the time or you're less encouraged to whereas when you're reading you're engaged in a very kind of personal way and there's much more of a a kind of interrelation between you and the text and what you internalise and what you don't but also the nature of writing I think is interrogative. Even if a writer doesn't mean to be interrogative the fact that they have created this world and they have written it down and they've edited and they've gone back and forth around it means that there is going to be some kind of movement there Um, and I think that's, that's what's really interesting about writing in general and why even though I don't like Hemingway's writing I would read him and be interested in what he's presenting to me. Yeah, totally. Um, and trying to read in between the lines, maybe, of his own understanding of his own masculinity.
0: Yeah. um, And I think that's one of the reasons why I host a show about literature and work in literature is because I, I see that potential. Um, Martha Nussbaum, who is a um, philosopher, I think she's actually a legal philosopher, talks about that sort of moral space of literature when it's all about exploring different paths that somebody could take um, and the sort of multiplicity of ideas that a book can hold. And I think you're right that that maybe literature is a space that can explore those things a little bit more. And I think to jumping to this idea of how things have changed, let's, let's talk a little bit about whether we think things have changed and whether novelists and writers are exploring masculinity in a different way today. Um, I'm, I found this quote from... Jeffrey Eugenides, um, who is an American novelist writing contemporary American novelist. Um, We're at a state now when where men are trying to figure out what part of them is to be disowned or changed. It creates a strange turbulence. And out of that turbulence, we're getting a certain amount of fiction. It's definitely move away from the male writers of the previous generation who perhaps were more happy to champion a kind of male imperative.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think it's high time. I also think you know, this this whole conversation shines a light on my failing as a reader in that I don't engage enough with those kinds of texts. And I do read from within a bubble quite happily. Um, and I think that's something to always consider as well. What bubble are you reading from within? Um, you know, and, and actually when I when I think about masculinity in literature, you know, there are vast swathes of very popular literature that I'm not reading. So I don't know what kind of masculinity they're presenting, like books by James Patterson, you know, the kind of war novels, spy novels, those master and commander books all about men on boats and that my father loved, you know, this kind of stuff, it doesn't cross my path at all. Whereas I think you have a more um, rounded perspective, partly because of your job, but also because your tastes are different from mine. And I think that, you know, that's very important to bear in mind also for me as, as a feminist reader. Yeah. Um, well, I—I
0: I mean, as someone with a little bit more perspective, although I have to say, when I was thinking about this, a lot of the novels I've read recently have been by women. Yeah, um,
1: which is a great thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, is that there does seem to be a change? Um, I think that it's no longer acceptable in literary fiction to just present a model of the ideal male that doesn't at least problematize some of these ideas of, of of masculinity that have held such sway in our culture. Um, I think that I've seen it especially in nonfiction, mm. um, that there have been a lot of, even in the last three years, there seems to be a mini boomlet of, uh men writing about what it means to be a man um and exploring that often with elements of memoir. So I was thinking of The Descent of Man by Grayson Perry, How Not to Be a Boy by Robert Webb, um, which was published last year, Man Up by Jack Irwin. There's also Thomas's book, um, which is all about masculinity, of course. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates writes about this. So yeah, I think that there's some really, really interesting stuff happening around masculinity right now in literature. Um, and and it's exciting. I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, can you think of positive male role models in fiction?
1: Uh, honestly, I really don't know how to answer that question because there are so many, there are so many men in literature that I love, male characters that I love. But when I think about them, I don't think they're very positive models, frankly. Um, you know, there's like the, the male characters in *The Master of Margarita*. I love Behemoth the cat. I love the Devil um, and their archetypes and their and the Master. You know, is complex, but he's still a problematic male character. Or you know, like a lot of the a lot of the the male characters that I feel very close to are from actually the Russian novels that I was very wedded to as a, as a kind of late teenager, like Dostoevsky's characters. And again, they're very problematic men. I mean, Levin is kind of wonderful contemporary male role models in literature i don't know babe i'm i'm kind of stumped and yeah. i think that's also actually because of my very bad memory <laughs> because i'm sure there are plenty and i'm trying to think
0: i don't know if this is like positive models of masculinity but i was thinking about nick hornby as somebody who is doing something interesting in terms of thinking about models of masculinity today
1: that are atypical and has been yeah. doing for a long time yeah. i mean i have i have problems with quite a few of his masculine characters but i think you're absolutely right and he writes in a space that is and especially when he first started writing he was writing in a space that was pretty new actually that kind of um beta masculinity that came around in the 90s in popular culture in a big way um, which was great and very welcome and has been a very important stepping stone into more questioning contemporary incarnations of it um I mean, I also, can I talk about my utopia? Yeah, <laughs> talk about your utopia. <laughs> because my utopia is really, it's a place where we where we can get to a space where people are free to play with the performance of gender however they want, but their human attributes are not gendered. So strength is no longer associated with masculinity. Neither is it associated with femininity. It's just an option for a human being to take up or not. Same with empathy, same with kindness, same with literally anything, same with some of the negative things as well. But if we can divorce them from an embodiment of gender, I think it will allow for everybody to be more flexible. And, you know, that's why it's a utopia, because, uh, you know, as Thomas was talking about in our conversation, when challenged, people retreat and double down on what they have been offered and what we have been offered as a society is very profoundly limited. And I think that's what people need to remember. That's why literature can be such an exciting space to explore these ideas because it allows for the free play of these things. And I don't see as much of that happening as I want. Um, It happens in science fiction as we quite often end up talking about writers like Octavia Butler, Ursula K. Le Guin. But I want to see it happening in more kind of realist spaces as well, because it is happening out in the world. So I, I would like to see that reflected. Amen, sister. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about our recommended books about masculinity.
1: Okay, so I wanted to talk about The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson because I think it it does question masculinity. And then I thought about it and was like, no, it's kind of a sidestep from the question. So I'm, I'm putting it in, but I'm moving on from it. Um, I was thinking of Rabbit Run by John Updike, which, uh, you know, is a sexist book and um, I have a lot of problems with it. But... It says so much about the culture in America at the time it was written in 1960 and I think rereading it now is is kind of an interesting and quite important thing to do actually with the state of America currently under Trump and, and all the rest. Um, And I think it's very interesting to return to that text with a contemporary eye. Um, It's uh, about a a character called Harry Rabbit Angstrom. I've mentioned it on the show before, and Updike ended up writing four novels about this character. And they kind of read as an examination of American post-war life. Through the figure of this man who is in many ways limited, he's a bit pathetic, he bails on everyone, he's dissatisfied, he's selfish he's fallen from grace in some profound ways so even when updike was writing it he is writing a kind of critique of masculinity however he's doing what you said which is also still reinforcing um, things that i think from a contemporary eye we can see are hugely problematic in the first place Um, and the women in that book are two-dimensional and disposable and violated. So, you know, it's a very problematic text, but it is a text that is all about masculinity. And Updike was an extraordinary writer. So even if you loathe the figures and you loathe the story, there's quite um, significant skill in the writing. So it's still worth thinking about it.
0: Yeah, it also brings up a lot of questions. It's like if, it, if some readers are unable to read a certain... Um, rejection or problematization within a text or satire does that does the text still stand up right there's this awful reading yeah I'm, and I'm not sure. I don't have but the answer. It's to interesting that to think about.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. What about you? What's yours?
0: Oh well, mine. <laughs> it's a book I might have talked about on the show before, but I think it was a while if I did. Um, which is a novel called The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. by Adele Waldman. Um, it's written in 2013. It's a really e- e- I read some reviews that compared it to people like Jane Austen or Edith Wharton. It's a, it's a social satire novel, really, um, really sharply written, funny, engaging, witty. Um, she's a wonderful writer. And it is also, I think, maybe a great example of the way that fiction is changing um, as feminism picks apart some of the more dangerous um, ideas around toxic masculinity. Um, so uh, this is a novel... Um, that follows Nate, um, who is a writer in Brooklyn. He is a sort of beat a male in that old-fashioned sense that we described. You know, he wasn't that popular in high school, but finds a new popularity as a writer in the sort of New York literati scene. And this novel um, is set over a pretty short period of time and just follows him through a series of love affairs that he has with women and um, follows his thoughts um, in a sort of free indirect style. And what is so great about it is it's it's a very humanist novel. He's not a one-dimensional person at all. But um, you just see how really toxic masculinity is alive and well and how um, men can totally rationalize decisions that they make that hurt people and are destructive within their love lives. And Uh, it sort of sneaks up on you and it's really smart and it's oddly comforting. Um, I feel like we've all been like sort of culturally gaslit and this novel picks that apart in a really interesting way. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm Carrie Plitt on Literary Friction, back here with Octavia Bright and also Thomas Page McBee, our lovely author guest, who has come to grace us with his book recommendations. So, Octavia, do you want to start and give your book recommendation?
1: I will start. Yes. <laughs> so I just finished a book called Exposure by Olivia Sujic, and it's left me very thoughtful. It's it's an essay about writing and anxiety published as a pocketbook. Um, by a press called Peninsula Press, who are an indie outfit. And they're they're doing really great work, so look out for them anyway and buy all of their books and support indie publishers. That's my uh, big kind of thing at the moment. But um, yeah, this book, it's very thoughtful, it's very intelligent, and it's an honest look at the crippling experience of anxiety, which is a bit of a buzzword at the moment, um, culturally, in in Western kind of um, letters, at least. And uh, she writes about, she kind of unpacks really her experience of writing and publishing a novel and then her profound experience of imposter syndrome during that process and then looking at the way that her work was received as a woman and a female voice writing about identity and um, and the internet and things that, spaces that are complicated for women to step into, I think. and, you know, the, the way she looks at anxiety isn't necessarily through a particularly gendered lens, but it is a gendered experience, I think. Um, the way that women are permitted or not permitted to speak about their own deficiencies or things that are considered deficient by society at large because the facade and the performance of a particular kind of feminine identity is, you know, toxic femininity is required to be maintained in in many ways. So it's, yeah, it's very thoughtful. It's left me thinking about a lot of things. Um, And she also, she references a lot of female writers that I really love, including Chris Krause, Rachel Kusk, Olivia Lang. um, And she kind of ties her thinking to the women that have come before her writing in a similar vein. So it's it's very, very interesting. There are things about it I didn't love, but on the whole, it left me thinking, which is what I want from that kind of a book. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think it's one for everyone to read. And if you're in a book club, I think it's probably a great kind of polemic space to start with. So yeah, that's my recommendation. Cool.
0: Thank you. Thomas, could we have your recommendation, please?
2: Yeah, sort of in a maybe different frame, but, um, but not. Uh, I... I'm not a YA reader normally, but I just picked up *The Hate You Give*
1: uh, Um, by Angie Thomas. Yeah,
2: yeah, which uh, it's been around. I think it's been it came out in 2017, I think, um, and now is a movie in the U.S., uh, which also sounds really fantastic, actually. But um, I'm I'm about halfway through it, and I'm really loving it. I really love when um, people use genre or form, you know, other formats to do interesting things. And uh, this book, as far as I understand, has a lot of classic YA elements. You know, there's like. You know, a romance, and there's inter, you know interpersonal dynamics with friends, and and that sort of thing. But the book itself is basically a coming of age story about um, uh, a black girl in the U.S. who's 16, whose friend, um, whose friend is shot by the police, and so she sort of comes into her activism, uh, comes into an activist sort of space through like that incident but she also attends a school that's mostly white and she lives in a neighborhood that's mostly black and she's sort of negotiating her identity in general and kind of the book I think it takes on systemic racism it takes on like really massive issues around like incarceration and um, obviously the police uh, police violence against black people and um especially black youth and it's sort of Somehow manages to do all of that in a way that's not didactic at all, um, but in fact, and uh, is, it, of course, it's moral, but it's not. Doesn't feel like a morality, you know, play at all. Like it's very much a complicated story about a sixteen-year-old girl who's thrown into the politics of today, and you know, in the U.S., and has to figure out her own identity against that backdrop. And um, and I think it does a wonderful job within this you know, within this format that doesn't usually take on such massive, complicated issues of really, um, without losing any of the heart, uh, uh, really taking them on in a way I've never seen done before. So it's a really incredible book.
0: I really want to read it. Yeah, Um, And all of the culture podcasts that I've been listening to have been talking about it because it, the film has just come out. It sounds yeah. amazing. The film sounds really great too, yeah. yeah.
2: But it's like, I think again, just the interesting thing is that it is it is a YA novel, like absolutely and that's sort of part of what's so incredible about it to me.
0: Great. Well, um... I'm going to be a little cheeky this month and recommend a play rather than a book.
1: Get out. I'll tell you why I'm doing it. Um,
0: Because I wanted to give a shout out to our listener, Liz, who after I said I wanted to read more books about female athletes. um, She works in the theater in New York and she pointed me towards a couple of plays, including Mm. this one. Um, which is called The Wolves by Sarah DeLapp. Have you come yeah. across this? Yeah. yeah. So it it's a debut play um, mm. by a very, very young director who happened to be at the performance I went to. Um, it got sort of rave reviews in New York. It was actually shortlisted for the Pulitzer. Wow. Um, and it's just come to London at the Stratford East Theatre. Now, I think the run might be over by the time the show airs, but I imagine it will be a play that comes around a lot. Um and it is, when I read the description of it, I was like, this play was actually written for me. It's about a group of teenage girls in the Midwest in the U.S. on an indoor soccer team. Oh, we got this. And, oh. <laughs> and, and the whole play unfolds over 90 minutes, um, and it's only during the warm-ups before matches. So you never actually see the matches. You never see anything outside cool. of this group of young women. Um, And I didn't love everything about the play. I thought some of the dialogue was a little on the nose. I think it was a little saccharine, but maybe I just feel that way because I've moved to the UK and find everything saccharine now. (laughs) I've been here for too long. Um, And this production, it was really good. The acting was really good. Some of the American accents were just so distracting um, because they were so bad. Wait, say more. What does that mean? uh, It's just like, I'm a girl from... Uh-huh. Like America, <laughs> <Is> that <laughs> like you doing a British person doing a bad American accent. That's yeah. amazing. Um, but uh, but I really liked it. I thought it was a play. You know, kind of what we were talking about before about um, what sports can do for women. This play that is really about bodies that aren't used f- sexually. That that these women who are strong and competitive and powerful and about their lives. And um, it's a a play that takes young women seriously, um, and the dialogue is so sharp. But also a play that really questions American isolationism and the isolationism of being a teenager as well, and how you engage with the outside world and how you engage with even the people around you. And I, I, I really, it made me think a lot. I really liked it, so I'd recommend. You know, if you can get a copy of the script or or go see a production, I, I would really recommend it.
1: Yeah, it really does.
0: That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Thomas Page-McBee, Rory Bowens at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for
1: editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram and get in touch with us via email at litfriction at gmail.com. We will be back in a month.
0: Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction.